Go Law Enforcement. Go Law Enforcement. Go Law Enforcement. Go Law Enforcement. The podcast that makes your law enforcement dreams happen. Welcome to the Go Law Enforcement podcast, brought to you by GoLawEnforcement.com. I'm your host, Joe Lebowski. Passing the police exam is a vital step towards becoming a law enforcement officer. GoLawEnforcement.com can help you pass the police exam and get a score that will get you hired. Check out GoLawEnforcement.com. Chris Berg and Paul Smith both began their law enforcement careers with the Sunnyvale, California Police Department. Chris Berg went on to become an undercover narcotics agent, and Paul Smith became an ATF special agent working clandestine methamphetamine labs and outlaw biker gangs. In this episode of the Go Law Enforcement podcast, you'll hear Chris and Paul talk about some of their most interesting cases. This is Paul Smith. My police career, I started out as a local law enforcement guy in Northern California, and I worked there for 10 years. Uh, During that time, I was a patrolman, field training officer, finally made detective, and after about 10 years of that agency, I got picked up by the feds, by ATF, and uh, worked there for not quite 21 years. And in that time, I was special agent, and I also worked in a um, special response team or, or SWAT. What interested me in law enforcement, growing up, there was a uh, man in our neighborhood. He worked for San Francisco PD. He was a police inspector there. As luck would have it, I, I started dating his daughter, and I was lucky enough that he didn't kill me for doing that. But along the way, uh, I became very interested in the type of work that he did. Not my college career as a geology major, of all things, but then I uh, found out that those classes were extremely hard and shifted over to criminal justice. And uh, much like uh, my partner, Chris, uh, when I graduated, I was able to get a job in law enforcement. This is Chris Berg, and I'm a former detective with the city of Sunnyvale. Well, it was a family thing for me, uh, third-generation law enforcement. My father worked for Fish and Game, and uh, his father was a policeman here in California. And I actually grew up, it was the only thing I ever really wanted to do, and I never thought about any other course. Like most of us uh, on the job, I started out pushing a patrol car, working graveyard, which suited me just fine. I loved that work. Ended up getting promoted into the detective bureau. Uh, I did assignments with vice and intelligence and some general crimes. And I ended up getting a post working as an undercover narcotics agent. And that was really my cup of tea. I decided to move over to the feds after about 10 years on the job with Sunnyvale. Sunnyvale was and still is a public safety organization. And which meant they were police and fire combined. And I didn't have a, a great deal of interest in the fire service. I'd had a chance to work with a few federal agencies uh, while I was a detective. One of the special agents from the San Jose office sort of 
pitched me for a job with ATF and I went up to San Francisco and interviewed with a special agent in charge and the written test. And after about a year of uh, processing, uh, I got picked up by ATF. The type of work that I did, I started out as a field agent doing just the general variety of cases that, that came through an ATF office, some firearm cases. Uh, occasionally, we'd have an arson or something like that. But my field especially started to become working on clandestine methamphetamine labs uh, at the time in Northern California, and that's that's where I was stationed with ATF most of my career. In the late 80s in Northern California, meth labs were just springing up everywhere. And a, a, a lot of them were outlaw biker gang operations, but then there were also what we called mom and pop labs. I ended up on a drug enforcement agency task force for a couple of years where we did nothing but methamphetamine labs. And over the course of that time, I became somewhat of a aficionado on the outlaw biker gangs that we had in the area. And for the rest of, of my career, that was pretty much what I investigated we met each other on the job. We both worked, uh, the Sunnyvale was the local agency uh, that I started out with. Chris was about a year or so ahead of me on the job, but we ended up working a few squads together in patrol. And then he got picked up by the detective bureau and I got picked up not long after that. So we were actually detectives together for a time. Preciously lousy day. You'd feel better about it if you heard this this guy's uh, day that he had with us. And it, it started, I was at the end of the shift, and uh, I was back writing reports in the office, and all the other narco buddies had gone off to find other endeavors for the evening. And I didn't want to go home, so I stopped at a local comedy club. I didn't have a beer. On the way in, a guy came out from between a couple of parked cars, approached me and said, hey, man, you want to buy some apple? And, uh, you know, I had long hair and a beard at the time. That seemed to make sense. And, of course, I did want to buy that. So we started talking. I asked him what he had. And he eventually uh, said, hey, I can I can sell you a lot. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, uh, pounds, if that's what you want. In those days, you just didn't see pounds of LSD. So that piqued my interest. We ended up doing about three deals with him. Uh, I think we did uh, eight of an ounce and then an ounce, and then we set up uh, what for us would be a major case, and that was going to be we purchased, I think it was a half a pound from him, and uh, then we'd do a bypass with the rest in. And that was really sort of where his day went downhill. By the time we finally got it all set up, he was supposed to meet me in a parking lot to deliver the dope. And he called me and he said, look, I got a problem. And I knew he had a problem because he was hammered when he called. And he said, look, I'm like two hours away. It's raining like hell. I'm on my motorcycle. And like every dope deal there's ever been, he knew he was going to be late. And sure enough, at the time we were supposed to meet to do the deal, and I probably had eight or ten cover officers and cars out in his parking lot. He was nowhere to be found. And uh, eventually, he showed up 
when he showed up, uh, he was pretty battered, and I could see his bike was damaged. I mean, I just said, you know, do you have it? And he said, I do. And I asked him where it was. He said, it's in my coat. So I opened the hood of my car, and I said, just throw it on the engine compartment. By far, the most LSD I had ever seen in one place in my life. So I, uh, I put my hands over my head, which was a signal for that particular time. And, you know, you could hear, hear cars starting up and the wheels spinning on the wet pavement. And they, uh, several guys tried to get in the same entry to the parking lot at the same time and kind of got clogged up. And they were making a lot of noise and not a lot, accomplishing a lot. And he started getting kind of thinking, like, what's going on? You know, what, what's, what the hell's happening here? So I stepped around behind him and put him in a carotid restraint. That really was just the the beginning of his bad day because after we took him to the medic and got him casted up, we brought him in to interrogate him. Basically what had happened is he had actually brought all the LSD that he had in his possession. He had called me and said, I don't have a scale, that's a problem. And I said, it's not a problem. I've got a scale. You bring it, we'll weigh it, and take the balance home after we do our deal. The guy this was not very sophisticated, and frankly, I didn't think he had it. But he did show up with it, and he ended up having three times the amount that I expected him to deliver, uh, which was about a pound and a half of these little micro dots, which was just a huge amount of LSD. And after we interrogated him, we found out that he'd been shown the acid incompetent, and of course he traded that confidence, and took the dope because we had a deal we could make this all happen in a weekend. So he breaks his arm, wrecks his bike, gets choked out, delivers all this dope, gets arrested, eventually goes to prison, and we eventually find out that the dope that he delivered to me, he'd stolen from an outlaw motorcycle gang after he'd been shown it in confidence. So once he hit prison, he had a price on his head. So as far as I was concerned, that was about as lousy a day as any one guy could have. This one particular occasion, the clandestine lab investigators had a pretty good line on a guy. He lived up in the gold country, up above Sacramento. But we were at the point where we knew we were going to do a search warrant on the place, and, and our ATF T team was going to make the entry, and then the, the narcotics folks were going to go in behind us. Well, what we did a lot in those days, especially on rural properties, it wasn't easy to get a description of the house and the outbuildings and whatnot, is we would do what we called the low crawl, which meant we would go there at night and kind of sneak around and, and get as much description and information as we could about the place. So my ATF partner and I, we decided that... Um, we would go in on a night when it was really dark, no moon. Uh, we did have some of the early night vision equipment at our disposal. We called them nods, and they had these uh, two kind of stock-like eyepieces that came out from them. So when you had the thing on, you looked a little bit like a bug. We were equipped with those, and, and we brought some uh, of the county sheriff's uh, SWAT team uh, with us as backup, and we drove into the as close as we could to the place, which was about a mile away. 
Uh, we had a seized uh, an old Ford Bronco that we had seized. And so we were packed in there with, with all these SWAT deputies, and we all had night vision stuff. And it wasn't that dark. And we made our way down the two-track dirt road towards this guy's place. And it was so dark, uh, a lot of tree cover in addition to no moon, that you could just, just barely make your way along quietly. And you're concentrating so hard, it just, it, it gave you a headache looking through these things and trying to navigate. Your depth perception isn't really what it would, what your normal vision is like. So it's easy to stumble over stuff. We got to the point where deputies were going to peel off and kind of around the outskirts of this guy's little farm. And uh, my partner, Randy, and I, we were going to head on in and and try and get some detailed information about the, uh, the layout of the place. We had one final huddle, and, and and my partner Randy and I, we both had earpieces and radios, but it just seemed easier to get close to one another and in uh, a whisper. So we grabbed each other by the shoulders, and we're having this whispered conversation, and the eyeball stalks on these night vision things are, are clacking together. So it's like a a couple of primordial insects doing some kind of weird dance with vision stock clacking together. But we get everything straightened out and we head down to the farmhouse. And to give you a little background, some state narcotics agents had tried doing a low crawl on the place about five weeks prior. And the guy had some dogs and the dogs alerted on him. It started barking and the crook comes to his front door Middle of the night, he just starts blasting the underbrush with a shotgun. So the state agents had backed out of there, and in their report, they detailed how he had shot at them. So that raised our anxiety a bit going in. The state agents had also described what they said were three of the largest Rottweilers they'd ever seen. So we know we got dogs down there, and we know this guy's phoned up to shooting if he thinks something's up. So we're definitely taking our time and going slow. We get down to the barnyard area, and I take a post at the corner of the barn, and we had a couple of silenced twenty-two pistols in the office. I'm not exactly sure that we should have had them out of the office and using them, but it seemed like the thing to do at the time for the dogs. But I take a, a post at a corner of the barn, and my partner, he's going to head on into the the yard in front of the house and get some license plates and uh, try and get a, a layout as to where the front door of the place is and a better description for the search warrant. So as he heads down into the yard, I'm looking around and I see this enormous dog house that looked like just another outbuilding almost. And I'm looking along the ground and here's this huge log chain and it's leading out of the dog house. At the end of the dog chain, there's nothing. There's no dog. So I'm thinking, holy cow, this dog is on the loose someplace. So I try to get my partner's attention on the radio. And, of course, he's intent on doing what he's doing. He doesn't hear me. So I'm looking around. And I looked down one side of the barn. And it was comical. It was like a cartoon. As I poked my head out and I looked down the side of the barn, at the other end of the barn 
this giant Rottweiler head appears. So he's looking at me, I'm looking at him. I very slowly pull my head back in and I try and get my partner on the radio again. And he's, and I'm whispering, he's not answering. I lean my head out again. And as I do it, the dog leans his head out, looks at me again. It's so dark, he can't see me really, but he knows that there's something there. Starts to woof a little bit. Well, his woofing got the attention of his owner inside the house. So the front door of the house opens up while my partner's down in the front yard getting license plate numbers. And he just freezes. So the guy stands there in the doorway for a minute. Our hearts have completely stopped. And finally, the guy calls this dog and it just tears off. Gives us a couple more woofs over his shoulder, and he bounds up the front steps and through the door where the guy slams the door. We finally get our hearts kick started again, and we start backing out of there. And as we uh, as we're clearing one of the final outbuildings, we did get a good meth smell. Which if you've ever been around a meth lab, it's got just a sickly sweet smell to it. There's no mistaking what it is. So that was. That was another good one for the search warrant. But we continued backing out of there as slow as we could. Got the sheriff's deputies rallied up with us. Got in the Bronco and started taking them back to the sheriff's station. And my partner was so ecstatic over being still alive and not dog bitten and not shot with a shotgun that he kept his night vision on even when we hit the highway and drove all the way back to the sheriff's department on these mountain roads at a high rate of speed with his headlights out, night vision on, and four sheriff's deputies screaming in the back of the Bronco. We wanted to write a book about policing that spoke in the true voice of policemen, as if policemen were talking to other policemen. And we knew that it, A, would not be politically and B would probably make some people uncomfortable, but that is one place we did not vary. We titled the book The Night Police because we had kind of had a, a, a running joke between ourselves and, and a couple of our close friends that, that the, the cops that work at night, especially the, the graveyard cops, are, are just a different breed than the guys that work day shift or or the neighborhood resource officer, or the school officer, or, or those types of jobs, which are a lot more public relations oriented. The guys that work at night, or the night police, as we call them, are the ones that are pretty down and dirty, and they're all about getting the job done, not too big on public relations. The story is a collection of, or based upon, things that just did happen to Chris or I or to both of us together or parked in, in our various stages in our careers. In a way, it's a, an anthology, a, a collection of these stories. Uh, we tried to make it how cops share stories with each other, uh, like when cops are in, in a bar together or any other venue where they're having a few drinks and swapping stories. 
One of the other things that we tried to show repeatedly with the stories in the book is that there's a lot of stuff that policemen come across that's really, it's hard on the psyche. Going on calls where you're dealing with children that have been hurt, family members that have lost someone, those types of things that just kind of tear you up inside a little bit every time you do them. And um, we would like for the non-law enforcement public out there to come away with a little bit of empathy maybe for the guys and gals that are out there doing that type of work. You do give up a lot. Uh, it takes a lot from you, especially over 20 or 30 years. I think the best way for people who are interested in the book or want to buy the book, uh, if you want to buy the book, you head to Amazon. Uh, it will be in a whole lot of channels over the next couple of months, but uh, you can buy it there, uh, The Night Police. And if you want to know more about the project or Paul or I or anything sort of relative to how this all came together, you can go to uh, our webpage and uh, just go into Google and Google the night police and, and give of our names. And we have a blog with a lot of posts, videos, a lot of sort of inside information. Sign up and join uh, our fan page, the uh, Friend of the Night Police. I think that um, a good path for any young person would be work on work on getting your your education, preferably your your four year degree. Uh, as most agencies won't take anyone until they're at least twenty one, so you've got that time period between high school and when you're old enough to get into law enforcement to work on your education. And it's a whole lot easier to do it than than after you're on the job and trying to finish up a degree at that point. And the other thing I would advise young people, don't shy away from starting as a local sheriff's officer, sheriff's deputy, or local police officer. You'll never learn the job like you will there. And then if you decide later in your career to go on to a state agency or a federal agency, more power to you. There's some interesting work to be done there, but you'll absolutely learn what being a policeman or a policewoman is about starting at the street level. I would like to add to that. If you're looking at a career in law enforcement, the environment is tough. The one piece of advice I would give youngsters is you have to have an impeccably clean record to make it through background investigations. I was having a discussion just recently uh, with someone who's in the know. Uh, we just did a recruiting for, they brought 90 people in and out of those 90, only two could make it through the background. And, you know, it's, whether it comes down to uh, using dope or, or whatever it might be, whether it has to do with domestic violence or whatever it is that could be in the background that can derail your career, there's a lot of real good candidates out there who have crashed and burned before they ever got a chance because of a lack of good judgment. When it happens early on, very, very difficult to overcome. So stay clean if you want to be in this business. Passing the police exam is a vital step towards becoming a law enforcement officer. GoLawEnforcement.com can help you pass the police exam and get a score that will get you hired. Check out 
GoLawEnforcement.com. Thanks for listening.